Welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. I can honestly say that every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition, about life, about what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum, Kay, lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis. And when it did, my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about dementia. I now know that it's possible to live a decent, if changed life, post-diagnosis. I know that it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this too. My guest today is a retired American teacher from Ohio, who, like me, is an Alzheimer's daughter. However, in my guest's case, both parents were diagnosed with dementia. And, and this is quite extraordinary, they were both diagnosed on the same day. My guest, Jean Lee, is also, like me, a writer. And after her parents died, she penned a memoir of her mum and dad, of their deep, lifelong love for each other, and how they and their unbreakable bond weathered the tumultuous storms of dementia. Called Alzheimer's Daughter, the book is at once a tender, highly personal account of one family's experiences with this brain-devouring monster, as Jean calls it, and a universal story, with moments that many of us who have confronted the monster will recognise only too well. Many of the descriptions brought back memories for me, perhaps none more so than when, after her parents' death, Jean is asked whether she's given herself permission to fall apart. Absolutely not. I don't believe I'll fall apart because mum and dad will suffer no more, Jean says. I've fallen apart for the last 10 years. Now I'll put myself back together. Jean Lee is a consummate writer and, may I say, an incredible daughter. And though besieged with doubts about publishing her book, constantly worried that she was betraying her parents, it seems to me that in writing it, Jean began to do what she said she would and rebuild her own life. After her book came an offer to work with another American author, Marianne Shuko, to gather stories written through personal experiences of dementia into an Alts author's collection. That was in 2015. Now, seven years later, Alts Authors has over 300 books in their store and more than 300 authors writing for them, including little old me. Three years ago, they became a not-for-profit enterprise. Their website signposts readers to caregiver resources and blogs, their travelling libraries, and their newly launched customised caregiver collections, about which more later. Oh, and they also have their own very good podcast. Jean, we've known each other through our writing and through social media for many years now, but I don't think we've ever actually spoken to each other. So let me offer you first a very, very warm welcome to Well, I Know Now. Thank you so much, Pippa. I do feel that I know you so well because we've been in contact for a long time in our writing journey and our 
dementia journey with our families. And Mm -hmm. I feel as though your voice is so familiar from listening to your podcast. Yeah, it's extraordinary, actually, isn't it? I I do. And also your book, of course, tells me a lot (laughs) about you and your family. And that's where I wanted to start, because your book does really give a wonderful insight into your family. But Obviously, lots of people listening may not have read your book yet. I recommend they do, by the way. But so, Jean, tell us all about your parents. Um, and in the book, and I know you changed some names, but in the book you call them Ibby and Ed, and we can carry on doing that. And they sound amazing, still so in love after 66 years of marriage and all they went through. So tell me about them and your family, your sister. Oh, thank you, Pippa. They were wonderful people, and I had one sibling, seven years older, my sister, who lived a thousand miles away when all of this was happening with my parents' dual diagnosis. The fact that she lived so far away sounds like a recipe for disaster, Mm -hmm. but we actually grew a very close relationship Mm -hmm. as sisters through that journey because we were seven years apart in age, and we had basically lived separate lives growing up. We had different interests, but my parents instilled faith and family values in us. We were small town people. And my story is different from many others because we did not have conflict along the way. I would say that my mom and dad, just by happenstance, when I was cleaning out their home, I found a box of their World War II love letters. Oh, well, I I was going to come on to that because that's an (laughs) extraordinary thing. So tell us about that now. But that was the most magical moment, I guess. (laughs) Well, I had the book mostly written when I came upon those and they became the chapter beginnings for me. and, And they really show the kind of love and devotion that from its first buds between the two of them, until their last breath, what Mm. held them together Mm. as a couple. And the thought that they were both diagnosed on the same day is tragic, but I think that allowed them to retain that special love that they had always had from the very Mm. beginning. Mm, That's interesting. And there was no conflict between the two of them, but Mm. there did become conflict between them and my sister and I Mm. because they felt capable and did not see themselves failing. And so as my sister and I, as a tight team, tried to come in and be proactive in their care instead of reactive after something might happen, they had disagreements with us in that Mm. care but Mm. still it was a very respectful journey and nothing like so much of the turmoil that many many families go through in disagreeing Mm. you said with your sister living a thousand miles away which is a long way away (laughs) but she became incredibly important to you in your care for your parents because she was your I think you describe her as your sort of virtual therapist, because she was always at the end of the telephone for you. And you could remain, because she was closer, so much closer geographically, you could remain your parents' sort of loving caregiver and then your sister. And it comes across in the book, which just be this amazing support to you. Absolutely. She was my caregiver by phone. 
and my support system by phone. Mm -hmm. And I would call her. I, I was working full time as an elementary teacher when this was all happening with my parents. And I would stop every day after work and fill medications, make sure there was food in the house, that kind of thing. And every day when I left their home, I would dial my sister and I would tell her exactly what was happening. And she never, I think because I kept her so closely informed, she never second guessed me. Mm. She never said, oh, really? I don't remember them acting like this. She just took what I was saying at face value Mm. and supported me in that way. And she also did everything she could by phone. She would make calls as we were trying to place them in a care community, as we were having doctors visits with them. You know, she would make phone calls and it was not as though she was a thousand miles away then. She would just ask for information, make requests from these entities. And she was right there with me. And she came often when I needed her. She would come in and be the bad cop and allow me to be the good cop. Mm. Yes, I thought that was very good because that's difficult. You know, it's a difficult it role to take on. Mm. It is. She would swoop in and say, now this is what's going to happen, mom and dad, mm. which is hard for a long distance person. They want to come in and be the good guy. Of course. But she mm. came in and made the tough decisions and just allowed me to be the loving caregiver. Mm. And I can't say how much I appreciate mm. that. No, I, I imagine that. Yes. And so talk us through now how we'll come back to your discovery of the wonderful golden box because that. <laughs> we'll come back to that because we'll get on to when, when you wrote the book. But let's go now to when you, I think, you know, because you were living so much closer to your parents, you began to notice that things were a little awry and then the lead up to this terrible day of the diagnosis and how your parents took the diagnosis because that was interesting too. So talk us through that, the first glimmers of something being not right up to the moment of diagnosis is extraordinary happening on the same day. Well... We began, my sister and I began noticing that things were just off, Mm -hmm. slightly off when mom and dad were both 80. Their official diagnosis did not come until they were age 86. So Mm -hmm. that says something about the Mm -hmm. length of time that a family knows something is Mm -hmm. wrong before they can really get a firm diagnosis and help. My dad was still driving. They were getting lost on the road. Neighbors were reporting things to us that just were off. They weren't dressed appropriately, maybe mm. warmly enough when they were outside. My dad was parking the car a kilter, maybe not completely stopping at stop signs. We were mm. so thankful for people who were honest enough to tell us this, mm. that that's not easy for a friend or neighbor. No, sure. Mm. And so they had a internist who they trusted with all of their medical needs. And my sister was able to email that doctor behind the scenes mm. and tell him what she was observing when they came to visit her in her home in Florida mm. and asking his help in what direction can you point us? Mm. And I remember being at an appointment with them, with this doctor they trusted, and 
course, he was in the know about mm-hmm. what was happening. And he suggested to mom and dad that we have a team approach to their care. They were very healthy people, physically healthy people. Mm. But he wanted to take a team approach to their care and introduce other members of the team, have them see some other people. And my mom and dad knew this was not a good thing. Somehow mm. they sensed this even from yep. this doctor. They very mm. much trusted. Mm. And I remember my mother saying, we do not want to meet with the committee. Committee. <laughs> <laughs> mm. The day I arrived to take them to one of those appointments, they had the door locked, the drapes drawn. They would mm. not let me in. Mm. And I had taken the day off of work. And I ended up calling my sister who called them and said, now, listen, you have to let Jean in because she's taken the day away from her classroom. You must go with her. Mm. And so it was a series of appointments with a geriatric specialist. And when we went back, the day that he delivered the diagnosis, my sister was on speakerphone, and I remember the doctor saying that they had Alzheimer's, and he, my, I have never seen my peaceful dad so angry. Mm. He, honestly, it, it was horrible. He stood up, and I thought he'd slug the guy. Right. And he was my dad was just so hurt, you know, with the suggestion that he was not mentally capable. And my Mm. mom was right there with him, you know, defending my dad. And we let the doctor be the bad guy. He, he actually, the doctor wrote three prescriptions. The one was that my dad must stop driving. Uh, secondly, he had to give two weeks notice at work. He was still involved in a family business. And thirdly, they had to seek help with daily living, meaning either bring someone in or move from their home. Hmm. And the fact that the doctor wrote these three things Hmm. on three little prescription Hmm. papers allowed us, as we continued through this process of trying to get them moved, allowed me to keep going back and saying, now, remember, these are the prescriptions. These are doctor's orders. Mm. We have to That's do That's quite this. a whammy, though, isn't it? I mean, to be told at the same yes. time, yes. you've got Alzheimer's and you can't drive yeah. and you've got to give up work and you've got to get... Right. It's a bit... Well, even right. just obviously any one of those is a, is a massive thing to take on board most of all the Alzheimer's, but it does seem quite a strong way to deliver it. But I can see what you mean about it giving you then the, you can keep referring back to it, but I guess it took quite a while anyway. I know there were, you know, with your dad's driving, did he immediately obey the doctor? (laughs) No. No, Well, actually, I'm sort of of rooting for your dad here. (laughs) 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 Because we lived in such a small town, Mm. the restaurant where they ate at, twice a day, every day, Mm. was within a block of their house. And my sister and I said, okay, you can get the car out and drive to the restaurant Mm. no further. (laughs) And they, you know, seemed to agree reluctantly. Mm. But it ended up that neighbors told me they had seen them Mm. out on the road. And Mm. I 
fact, one of the most terrible things I ever had to do was actually check the odometer on the car mm, mm. to see where had they been, how far mm. had they gone mm. each week. Mm. Uh, that was painful. Well, this brings us to the other point, because all through this time, which really, I suppose, you know, enabled you to write out Simon's daughter, you were keeping a journal at the suggestion of your sister because she lived so far away when you were really kind of tracking the symptoms even before the diagnosis. And you felt incredibly guilty about that, didn't you? I mean, the whole thing really was fraught for you with a sense of betrayal. And that is so common. I mean, Jean, I felt that so much with my mum. Just explain about that, you know, from the journals and then writing the book. And you didn't even want to publish the book. You know, you just felt all the time that you were betraying your parents, which actually reveals your love for them. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. Um, yes, at my sister's request, because she was so far away, she said, Jean, will you start a journal so that when you call, you can open that and we can look mm. at the actual decline, the frequencies mm. of idea. the oddities. Mm. And so I did. I had kept a basic notebook when I took them to the doctor of blood pressures, weights, mm. all that kind of thing. But then I started to make more notations in it so that my sister and I could talk. And that is what became the core mm. of Alzheimer's daughter. And being a teacher, I just took one, a spiral bound journal from my classroom, one that no child wanted because the cover was black. Mm. And I, you know, started making these dating and making these jottings in this journal. And I actually prefaced it. I wrote in the front cover. I, I wish I had it in front of you to read my mm, exact mm. wording, but I wrote, I am only writing this to document information that could be helpful in a diagnosis for my parents because I, and I threw this thing in the bottom of a mm. junk drawer. I hid it because I didn't want anyone to find it. Mm. It felt like I was tattling on mm. wonderful people and gossiping mm. about them and then when it really came that I was fleshing it out to mm. write the book, I felt such incredible guilt in mm. writing. And mm. I tried to put it away mm. so many times. It took me four years to write the book. Mm. And I would think, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't do this. And I put it away. And it would come back to me in the night, mm. these beautiful mm. phrases that I could use mm. to describe what was happening between them, their love, and, and what my sister and I were going through. And it would haunt me. Mm. I'd drive to work in the morning, and I'd, I'd drive right through town, right past their house, right mm. past the cemetery. And these beautiful phrases would come to me. And I actually bought a little voice recorder that I could record these phrases. And then I'd come home at night and put them in the draft for the book. Mm. Um, but Pippa, I've got to tell you that in the agony that I felt in publishing this, I mm. mean, I actually felt as an aside, just sidetracking here a bit. When I finally pushed the final publish button, I really felt as though I would be struck by lightning and die. Mm. No, you, it comes across very strongly. It's an incredible <laughs> sense of guilt you felt. And I'm not, I'm not making that up. It was no, true. I know, I can tell. I was so afraid to push that button because I would be stricken dead. And as it 
went out to the world and I published it. I just waited for a tongue lashing in the reviews. I waited for the reviews to say, you evil daughter, for revealing such personal things about your wonderful parents. And as reviews started coming in, I would open them almost shielding myself like, oh mm. no, mm. You know, I'm getting ready for a beating here. And Pippa, yours was one of the first reviews and yours was so lovely and so detailed. And you, you helped me heal. You were one of the very first people who helped me heal by saying your book had value to me. And I, uh, so I appreciate you so much for that. Mm. But the thing was, because obviously people listening will be thinking, yes, but you did publish it. So what led you to overcome this absolutely extraordinary sense of betrayal, which it does come through in the book. And of course it was, well, you, you say, but it, it was exactly what you just said about me saying that this is of value. It was because your mum died first and then your dad, and he very quickly couldn't remember your mum. And you, you thought, this is really going to help other people going through what we're right. going through. And just quickly, that's exactly why I wrote the first very personal, very honest account in a newspaper here, a national newspaper about my mum's dementia, which, again, I did think, gosh, people are going to think I'm the most terrible daughter. In fact, we're the most <laughs> terrible family. But we had to do it because of my dad, because he didn't have dementia and all. But it was to try, and I said in my piece, you know, it's to try and show people they're not alone, which is a phrase you use, um, to offer right. comfort and solace to others. And I think that's what we all do in this sector that we're in, you and I, isn't it, by sharing these stories. And also, can I just say that by sharing your story in the way you do as a writer, you do show people, as I just said, how much you loved your parents because you don't tell them how much you loved your parents. But as a writer, you do that thing, which is you show, not tell. Oh. And in the showing of the, of, the, of the guilt you felt, you actually reveal your love. So, so anyways, you, so you did decide, you made this agonising decision to publish. Yes. But also before you publish, let's just go to this moment terrible moment which a lot of people and certainly me because this was the shocking moment for, for us as a family when you had to clear out your parents house because they'd moved into the first of their as a community sort of place wasn't it they first moved to mm -hmm. and as you were doing out the house then explain this incredible thing that happened well if I could backtrack just a bit to your question about why I published the book yes of course it's such a good question and I'd like to take you back to that moment. Mm. Um, one week after my mother's death, I was sitting with my dad and he had no memory of her. Mm. And it was as though she was lost to mm. him. Mm. And it was at that point, I thought, oh my goodness, I, this is a story of dual diagnosis and simultaneous decline that could help others who might be going on this journey. So I started to flesh out this journal and I realized, okay, this could help other people. And so I joined a local writing group mm -hmm. to help me write what was going to be my family story. This was for my family so that they knew our 
family history as it related to Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and dementia. Not for publication more broadly or publicly. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. So I took my draft to this local writing group and they looked through it and they said, Jean, this is not just for your family. This has a larger scope. Mm. And so they poured time into this with me, helping me hammer out every detail, helping me show and not tell. Mm. And it was an investment of time through this entire group. Right. And they very much pushed me to publish it. And so I really published it with all of them underneath me, lifting me up, Mm. saying, publish this, Mm. push this button. We've got it right. Push this button. And I think without their cheering me on and encouraging me, I would not have done that. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And now tell us about finding the. (laughs) In the clean out. So my parents were World War II savers you know, depression era, everything was saved. Every plastic butter container, oh, and yes. lid, every school <laughs> said, project yes. I had ever, ever done, yeah. ever, ever report mm-hmm. card. And the house was a mess. We had always lived in cozy clutter. Right? We never lived in a house that was well organized. It was lived in and cluttered always, but it became more so mm. when she just could not sort things out, figure things out. So those were the darkest days for me after moving them, going back into that cluttered house Mm. where there had been a lot of hoarding and sorting that out Mm. I'd go every night after work it's a terrible thing to do Mm. and just make piles and Mm. trash bags and a a wonderful neighbor across the street helped me if I put the stuff in trash bags and put the bags in the garage he would haul them out to the curb Mm. on trash day and they were angels to me but in the process In my mom and dad's closet, I found this box that I had never seen before. And it was a box that Hallmark cards would come in, Mm -hmm. had a gold foil top. And I opened it and I found all these letters stacked vertically like little files in a file Mm -hmm. cabinet and my dad's dog tags on the top. Yeah. And I took a peek at one of them and I realized they were primarily my dad's letters to my mother and mm-hmm. she had kept all of them. Some of them were her letters to him, but he hadn't kept as many as she had. And I, I took a peek and then I thought, no, I don't have the right to read these. Mm. These are private. Mm-hmm. They were written between the two of them. I wouldn't want my children reading something that My Mm. husband and I wrote to one another before we were married. No, I'm not going to read these. I kept them in this box and I kept moving the box with mom and dad. I'd take Mm. the box to wherever they Mm. were living as we had to make many moves with them. It just always stayed with them. Mm. And the the letters were something that it appeared they got them out and they read them and they Mm. reminisced. Mm. And so The day of my dad's funeral, my sister and I, you know, we had removed all of his belongings Mm. from that final place. 
And we actually stood over the trash can and dumped the letters in the trash can mm. because we were still committed to, no, mm. these mm. are not for our eyes. We will not read them. It would be a violation. Mm. And then my sister said, let's just take a peek. I, know, I was thinking I would so be your sister at that moment. <laughs> and so we did. We started taking them out of the envelopes and they were like, oh my gosh, they were just so sweet. And it was the mundane that they communicated about too, as mm. well as their love for one another. Like, you know, my dad would say, I, I spent a dollar and a quarter on a haircut today or whatever. Kind of like a today's couple would text or, you know, mm. little details back. Yeah, I, I want. I won four bucks in the poker game last night. Jean, I'm gonna. We weren't going to, and we haven't prepared this. But can you think of one? Because it'd be a lovely moment to read out actually one of the love letters. Have you got one there that you would like to to read? Just a short one. I do. I do. And this letter was the very first letter my mom wrote to my dad. They had gone to high school together, but they had not dated. They were both actually dating someone else. Oh. <laughs> and as my dad was getting ready to leave for the service, my mom realized, oh, my goodness, you know, I, I think I care for this man. Mm. And so she wrote this to him in 1941. Dear Ed, I don't know why, but it seems so much easier to tell you in writing how much you mean to me. You know, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. In these uncertain times, everyone needs someone to live for, to dream about. Without this, we're lost. Ed, I love you with all my heart. I'd consider it an honor if you'd allow me to wait for you until the war is over. Why couldn't I have realized and told you about my feelings in person before you left for the army? I am so very sure now. Lovingly, Ibby. That is such a lovely love letter, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And it was shocking to find it. Mm, mm. I don't think we ever sort of consider our parents to have been young and in love. No. <laughs> and their letters, and there are a lot of them, and they do preface every chapter, are, are so sort of exquisitely tender. They're absolutely wonderful little snapshots of their love. And because they're through the war, it just makes them sort of all the more poignant, really, because of that fear that must have accompanied them. Yes. Mm. So that was lovely. Anyway, And you, so then you decided, did you, that that was what you would do with them? You would use them in the book, which actually, for me, as I remember, that's about the only thing I do remember of my review, was that made it for me. Because it really, <laughs> it made it so human. Oh. It brought these two older people very much to life. You know, Pippa, many people have said that. And yes, you know, my sister and I, we took these letters, put them in chronological order, put them in an envelope and stashed them away. While, and I was writing the book. I was writing Alzheimer's Daughter at that point. Mm. And so, again, this idea came to me that, oh, my goodness, I could use their writing in this book as well. But then that even swamped me with more guilt, more guilt. because I thought mm. these were letters I was never intended to mm. see and now I'm publishing them. <laughs> mm. I think the letters did make the book and the book will have helped so many people. Well, you know, you know it did. Yes, and we will come on to the setting up of the arts authors because 
you did publish the book, for which we're all eternally grateful. It is a great book. And then explain what happened and how that led on to the setting up of what you've now become heavily involved in. In fact, you're one of the co-founders of Alts Authors. So just tell us about what Alts Authors is. Pippa, Alts Authors, just to put a big umbrella over it, Alts Authors has healed me. And mm. it heals our authors. Mm. And so now to boil down what is all's authors, I'm a reader. I never considered myself a writer. Mm. But through the journey with mom and dad, I read everything I could find because I read to solve problems. And so I would download, it was the very beginning of digital books and e-readers. And mm. I, I would search late at night for anyone who was willing to tell a personal story that I could read mm. of a similar journey. Because even, I mean, no journey is exactly like your own, but if you read about the journey of other people who are brave enough to share their story, there are some kernels of truth in it mm. that allow you to get up every morning, put mm. your feet on the floor, breathe and move forward. Because so right. Mm, somebody mm. else made it through this journey absolutely you're not alone mm. those books gave me so much courage and I don't know that I would have survived without them so once I published Alzheimer's Daughter and I was so insecure about it I wanted to reach out and thank the authors who had sustained me and one of them was Marianne Shuko and I actually took the bold step of putting my book in an envelope and mailing it to her. Because Marianne Shuko had written Blue Hydrangea, hadn't she? Blue Hydrangeas, and that is one that I had just loved as I was searching for things to read. And so I sent my book to her with a, a note. I've published a journey as well, and your book sustained me. I'd just like to give you my book do you think it has any value? And I thought she'd throw it in the trash. You know, I was reaching for greatness, sending her this book. And I heard from her and she said, Jean, your book is lovely. And people are unable to find things like this to help them through their own personal journey. Would you work with me to elevate titles written through personal experience with Alzheimer's and dementia? And I said, boy, you bet I will. Mm. And she said, who else have you read? And I had read Vicki Tapia's Somebody Stole My Iron. Mm -hmm. And so I mentioned that. And she said, have you ever corresponded with Vicki Tapia? Would you? And let's see if she would be interested in this endeavor too. So the three of us started talking together. We found we really enjoyed each other's company. We decided we would try to write for other blogs blogs about Alzheimer's or caregiving. We would try to get our articles out there to them, which we were, you know, mildly successful at. And we did that for about a year. And then we thought, we have read so many of these books. Why don't we start a blog about and invite these other authors to mm. tell our audience about their books mm. and through that all's authors was born we were actually we were going to do this for one month we were going to reach out to people 
would they tell us about their book or blog? You were one of those first, I believe, Pippa, that we reached out to. You did. That's how I got to, I don't know if that's how I got to know you, but I do remember that. And I wrote about the guilt that sort of laced my own, which is very much a novel, actually. So it's not quite the same. I think actually we took your blog first before Invisible Ink. You wrote to us about your blogging. So we did this for a month and we did one every day. We featured a new author or blogger every day. And that was so intense. And we thought, well, we really enjoyed what we're doing. And it worked for a month. How about if we keep going with this, but slow down our pace to a a new book a week? Mm. And that was in, I would say, 2016, Mm -hmm. uh, 2017. Vicki and Marianne and I published our books in 2015. Mm -hmm. So we've been going strong since then. And we now have over 300 authors who we reach out to personally. And they write an entry for us about their journey. And they give all their social media links, links to their books. And and that's what is on all's authors. These are words from the authors themselves. And then we have their book featured in our online bookstore, which, you know, if you go to Amazon and type in Alzheimer's, you're going to get all kinds of stuff like eat more bananas, you know, and, and we wanted to feature quality books written from personal experience. So we have memoirs written by daughters, sons, spouses, mm. partners, mm. grandchildren. No, it's, it's it's brilliant. But you also have sort of resources, don't you, that you signpost people to. And also you um, tell us about the traveling library, because that seems to have really taken off too. Oh, so three years ago, we started a podcast for people who have more time to listen than to read. Mm. That became an award-winning podcast. And then just within the past year, we started an initiative, which we have a heart for these books. Mm. And yes, we realize people can order the ebook or the paperback. They can listen to the audiobook, but we were missing a segment of people, an important segment of people who are living it now. And they have made a difficult decision to bring in care or they have entrusted their loved one to a memory care facility or an assisted Mm, living mm. facility. And they do not have time to read. And many of them are in that in-between age where they're just not going to download a book or order a book from Amazon. So we wanted to get real books to Mm. real people in real places All's Authors is managed by six daughters of dementia. Mm -hmm. And one of our six managers and her husband, they have crafted these tabletop bookshelves that we can ship flat and they slide together in about 30 seconds. And we pack them with, on average, 15 to 18 books from our collection. And our goal is to get these into care communities in the lobby or in, the, in their libraries or to doctor's offices. Or we've had mm. some used in a university setting mm. for mm. teaching mm. of uh, geriatric dementia practices. We've gotten them to memory cafes. And Jean, this is throughout how large an area of the U.S.? Well, we really have done this coast to coast now. Wow. We've got some in California. We've got some in North Carolina on 
you know, on the West Coast and the mm-hmm. East Coast. And we're up to about 20 of these collections. And this month, we're running a campaign of a price reduction. Our goal is to get 10 of these out in 10 days. And so it's such an exciting initiative to think that someone who is actually going through that, to think that we can light the path for someone who is mm, going through that difficult journey make it a bit, now. a little bit easier because it is so difficult. Yes. yes. No, I mean, you can, you can tell you're very, very passionate about it. And it's wonderful <laughs> to hear that in your voice. And the uh-huh. other thing, you know, because obviously I ask people what they say they know now um, in keeping with the theme of the podcast. One of the, the, the things that you said that you know now, which I haven't had from anybody else, is that grief can very slowly be replaced by a love story. And when I hear you talk, everything you've done really from writing of your book, discovering the letters, the love letters, using them within the book, then reaching out to lots of other authors, outs authors, and now still you're still trying to find different ways to percolate into different communities. Um, I think it really has, you've used the word heal, but I can see how it's sort of healed you. And you talk about how the, you know, the love comes through and the love remains. And the way, for me anyway, and I think I sense a bit for you, when you have to sit down and put something into words, it helps you to deal with it. And I'm thinking here about, there's a lovely passage in your book where one of the things you talk about is the fact that even when somebody has become which is terrible to see as a loved one, but a sort of shell. They're no longer really there, but they are there physically. But the the core of them is still there. And I don't know if you can sort of find it right now, but there's a, a passage where you talk about your dad and it's towards the end of his life. And I believe your mother has already died. And you put this very beautifully there and you can see how out of this grief comes a love. I don't know if you can find it to read to us now, Jean. Thank you, Pippa. I, I can read it to you now. And I'd, I'd just like to preface this by saying, as we write from our heart, we never know how our words are going to impact a reader or what that reader is going to pull out of what we said that actually has meaning for them. So I'm, I'm touched by the fact that this has meaning to you. So it's near the end of my book. When I contemplated dad's impending death, I realized I still had many lessons to learn from him, even though he'd lost his mind. The most beautiful part of dad was what still remained. When Annette and I were children, dad was so busy building a career, we hardly had time to know him. Mom had managed the home and he'd been the provider. Now I could observe the man who remained at his core. This shell of a man continued to teach me to live with joy and find happiness in the simplest of moments. Dad found giddy happiness in McDonald's ice cream and sweet-smelling hand lotion. How often did I completely ignore mundane things such as these in my life? I thought of how many times I might have been in the middle of a wonderful moment, but I'd not recognized it because I didn't fully engage. Anxiety loomed as I'd anticipate visits 
and conversations with my father. Even though I sat beside dad's living five foot seven, 140 pound stooped frame, I was gripped by this pain, the stabbing pain of the loss of him. Mom was dead, but dad was gone. While I talked to this man who couldn't remember 66 years of marriage to my mother, and didn't know me any longer as his daughter, I stuffed down my emotion and explained mom's death to him as though I was reading a children's story to a four-year-old. During one visit, dad asked, what happened to that woman I admired? Ibby died and went to heaven, I responded. Oh, he moaned, hanging his head. No wonder I can't find her. I began to let mom help me when I visited dad. I felt her spirit standing behind me, guiding me with the fingertips of her open hands on my shoulder blades, at the same time supporting me so I wouldn't fall. Mm, I thought it was a very tender moment there. And Thank you. lots of things are contained within that. Um, there's the love, the loss, the grief. Um, but also how, and I hear this such a lot from people actually with dementia as well as their carers, how then the very smallest seeming things can actually become very important and really help sustain you, which is sort of what I say in my introduction every every podcast, you know, the Sylvia Plath quote, it's this, how the tiny things, the small things, like a snowfall, can mean such a lot to a person, so... Um, thank you, Jean, for coming and sharing your your many stories, actually. Um, and it's really very, very nice to talk to you. Not quite in person. I don't know. My geography is absolutely terrible, but there are several thousand miles separating us. Um, but but to actually hear your voice, it's it's really nice after all these years. So thank you very much and good luck with everything you do with Authors and with everything else you do. Thank you so much for having me today. I've enjoyed connecting with your audience and thank you for your support all along the way in my journey, Pippa. As we said, Jean and I have known each other for many years, seven by my reckoning, yet never spoken to each other, even on the phone. We must have written hundreds, thousands of words to each other in the form of articles, emails and messages And it was wonderful finally to hear her voice. The strong bonds of love binding her family and holding them tightly together, despite the tremendous strains put on them by her parents' dementia, imbue her speech as they do her book. I was struck again by the layers and layers of guilt that built up in her as she and her sister took successive, necessary, completely understandable and virtually impossible decisions. I've been there, Jean, as have many of you listening. And I was taken by her observation that her parents' dual diagnosis on the same day, while tragic, allowed them to retain their special love. They walked the Alzheimer's path together. Two people with slightly different symptoms, but one couple hand in hand in a new, sometimes frightening, cloudy and confusing world. Talking to Jean also reminded me how long it's been now since I began writing publicly in the national press about my mum's dementia and how far I've come since. Just like Jean and her parents, my experiences have led me into new challenges 
and introduced me to fabulous people I'd never have met otherwise. How strange, impressive and imponderable life is. Jean's book, Alzheimer's Daughter, is available from Amazon, either directly or through the Al's Authors website, which you can find at alsauthors.com, and that's A-L-Z authors.com. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.